0: welcome to the fifth episode from die France my name is Kurt de and this is my fifth episode that I'm airing from on die and even though I'm not currently in on uh, I am finishing up this series this podcast is actually being brought to you from Miami Florida and uh, I have just spent 10 wonderful days in Cuba and the, uh, the next three podcasts after this will be about my experience in Cuba, but today I'm so happy to bring you the fifth episode about Ernest Hemingway's experience and time that he spent in Andai, France, and this podcast focuses on 1933. Now our first four podcasts were pretty easy to remember because they were staggered every other year. Hemingway first went to Andai in 1925. He returned in 1927 with Pauline. In 1929 he returned solo to work privately and in isolation and in 1931 he went with Pauline. Now here we are again in 1933 and he has been a busy busy guy and he returns to Andai only for a few days at the end of August And this would be his very last trip to Andai until 1953, when he would come here with his fourth wife, Mary. At this time of his life, he was almost finished writing the book Winner Take Nothing, which was actually a collection of 14 short stories. They were ultimately published shortly after his time in Andai in August of 1933, and in October it finally hit the uh, the new uh the uh public bookshelves. Ondaita Day, as we know, it's on the uh coast of at the, the Atlantic Ocean in the Basque region, and it sits right on the border of Spain. And the beautiful little town next to us here is Onda where Ernest would enjoy Rioja wine, uh he would enjoy pinchos and the tapas that uh, were so Uh, delicious that the Basque country uh, women uh, would serve uh, and men as well and uh, so where, where to start well I think the start here to help you understand best about Hemingway and his time here in Andai we ought to take a look at what happened to him in 1932 now some of the highlights in 32 are let's think about where he was he was in Key West and he had just moved to the house on Whitehead Street 907 Whitehead Street and Pauline was trying to organize the house but at the same time Hemingway was inviting all of his literary friends to come down and and experience this wonderful sea fishing he deep sea fishing he was beginning to experience And in March, he got caught in a storm off the Dry Tortugas uh, near Fort Jefferson. Uh, Mike Strader, Archie McLeish, Uncle Gus Pfeiffer, and his new friend Charles Thompson from Key West were stranded there for several days. And in April and May, it's really important to understand that Hemingway discovered Cuba for the first time. He went to Havana with... Josie Russell on the uh, the shipping or the, the boat it was called the Anita and it was a 32-foot cabin cruiser and Ernest and and his friend Charles Thompson and Josie Russell set sail uh, for uh, or made their way on April 20th to Havana and they were gone over two months and he fell in love with the deep blue uh, the, the, uh, the ocean and uh, the Gulf Stream, he called it. And he loves fishing so much that he postponed his planned trip to Africa until late the next year. Now, what was he working on uh, in addition to his collection of short stories? Well, at this time in 1932, he was deep into finishing Death in the Afternoon. And when he was not fishing in Cuba, He was working diligently on Death in the Afternoon in his writing studio off the main house in Key West. It's interesting to note that when he got his page proofs for Death in the Afternoon from his publisher, Max Perkins from New York, the galleys... Or the the, the pages on which Ernest would make editorial changes the top of each page had a slug as it was called and the slug was selected by the publisher to lead with the author's name and then the beginning of the proposed title to the book and so this slug read Hemingway's death and that really got Hemingway all upset and it didn't help that he at the end of June he came down with uh, bronchial pneumonia But in a letter to Max Perkins on June 28, uh, it's interesting to hear his words. Here's what he said. But listen, Max, could you ball out, please, or raise hell with this son of a bitch who slugged all these galleys, Hemingway's death? You know I'm superstitious. And it's a hell of a damn dirty business to stare at that a thousand times, even to having it written in red and purple ink. If I would have passed out, would have said your goddamn lot. Put the curse on me. Max, I feel damned sick still, but I could break the neck of the punk that slugged these galleys. So Hemingway was none too pleased with, uh, with having to see that each day. Now, Hemingway was also concerned about censorship, and, and Hemingway not nearly as much as his publisher uh, Scribners. Because back then, the use of, quote, dirty words, unquote, was not very acceptable in order to get the, uh, to pass the censorship laws. And here's what he says to Max in another letter. About the words, you're the one who has gone into that. If you decide to cut out a letter or two or keep inside the law, that is your business. I send the copy and you're supposed to know what will go to jail and what will not. F blank CK the whole business that looks all right it's legal isn't it interesting well in July Ernest and uh, Pauline headed back to the El Barty Ranch near Cook City Montana and Ernest and Pauline had departed from Piggott Arkansas where uh, Pauline's parents lived and they headed back to the El Barty and boy is it beautiful I spent a little time there last summer Ernest is now sick though with a sore throat and you can get an idea that even as a big husky man who looked fully healthy always in all the pictures uh, as a young man Ernest often suffered for, from sore throats and from coughs pneumonia fever flu you name it he seemed to get it but in September he ha September 23rd death in the afternoon was finally published and it's interesting that he dedicated this to Pauline especially given that in this particular part of his life, he was starting to have a bit of an affair here with the beautiful Jane Mason. And I'll speak more about that a little bit later on September 26, Ernest hunted down this huge bull elk and he killed it. And the rack was magnificent and he was very happy about that. And then in October, 1932, um, he was working hard on his next project and this was called winner take nothing in October of 32 also he was uh, uh, he was hunting and fishing still and he was joined now by Charles Thompson from Key West and they went hunting for elk moose and bear and on October 16 they departed for Key West in a heavy snowstorm in November Hemingway finishes a short story in which he calls uh, he titles it a way you'll never be. And in this story it's it's noteworthy to point out that his protagonist Nick Adams suffers from post traumatic stress syndrome in World War 1 and the the short story is kind of a mysterious piece about whether or not Nick Adams has PTSD or not. And Many people believe that Hemingway was a soldier in the war, in World War One, but he was not a soldier. He was a Red Cross volunteer, serving first as an ambulance driver, and then, two weeks after arriving Sceo, Italy, which he called the Sceo Country Club, he was transferred to the Fasalta area because he wanted to be in the thick of the action. So here, Ernest and three others from Section 4 put their hands up and said, Hey, we'll go to the Fosalta River. We want to see action. Even though we're Red Cross volunteers, we'd like to get into the thick of things. Okay, but back to December now of 1932, Ernest refused to attend the screening of the movie version of A Farewell to Arms. He was in Piggott, Arkansas at the time, and he had not yet befriended Gary Cooper, who was the star of this movie. You might remember that Hemingway and Gary Cooper became good friends starting in early 1940 in Ketchum, Idaho, Uh, actually in the early 40s. I think it was 1941 when they first met. Well, in 1932, Ernest and Pauline spent Christmas together in Pigot. Patrick and Gregory were now just recovering from Whooping Cough, I think it's Whooping Cough actually, and uh, Bumby, uh, John is also with them. The storyline has been changed so much in this movie, A Farewell to Arms, that Ernest is disgusted with it, and he refused to go to the uh, the uh, showing of it. Well, now we come to 1933, and 33 is significant because in January, Hemingway met Arnold Gingrich, who was the editor of the up and newly formed magazine, Esquire. And Gingrich invited Ernest to be a guest writer to write brief stories for his magazine and uh, they hadn't signed a deal then yet because they were to sign the deal shortly thereafter but in February and March of 33 Hemingway and his friends made several excursions in and around the Key West waters and Pauline and Bumby sometimes joined him on the Anita with uh, Josie Russell as far as his work was concerned in April he and Arnold Gingrich shook hands And Ernest agreed to write short articles for Esquire for $250 each. And his first article was entitled Marlin off the Moro, a Cuban letter. And it was ultimately published later that year in the September issue, the very first issue of Esquire. On April 12th, Josie, Charles, and Ernest departed Key West and they headed back for Havana. Hemingway had gotten the bug because he was now after not only the blue marlin in the deep gulf stream but he also wanted some privacy not only to do some writing but he was also doing a little canoodling with Jane Russell Hemingway's first mate here that he ever used with Josie Russell was a very very steady and a hard working and very knowledgeable man about catching marlin his name was Carlos Gutierrez That spring, Ernest would use the Ambos Mundos as his writing base and it was room 511 where he agreed to pay $40 a month and it was on the top floor. It was the zero, one, two, three, four. It was the fifth floor, the very top floor if you don't count the bar on the floor above it. Frequent guests are often invited to fish with with Ernest and uh, Josie and Charles and among them are Jane Mason, and at first, her husband Grant would come along, but later it was just Jane. And even Pauline would join them on occasion. On may twenty four, Jane had a car accident, and uh, she uh, the, uh, the next day went fishing with with Hemingway. and even though she was dazed and hung over, she managed to catch two Marlins. She was an incredibly um, active outdoors woman. She was a beautiful woman. She was in her early twenties, but, uh, Jane, um, was not very stable psychologically. And, and on June four, she either jumped or she accidentally fell from her two story balcony in Wymanitas, which was a 15 minute suburb just West of Havana. And she seriously injured her back. Now, Ruth Hawkins wrote a really interesting segment about Jane Mason in her book uh, Unbelievable, uh, the title Unbelievable Happiness and Final Sorrow. And let me just read an excerpt from this book. Though taking care of the boys and tending to household improvements limited Pauline's time, she managed two Havana visits in May for a week each time, perhaps to monitor her marital property. Part of the allure of Havana Particularly for Ernest, was the presence of their new friend Jane Mason, who often fished with them. Pauline enjoyed Jane's company as much as Ernest, though she detected Ernest's infatuation with her. Beautiful, charming, a good sport, and a great admirer of Hemingway, Jane fed his insatiable ego. She enjoyed fishing with Ernest and the crew, and whenever Pauline came to town, Jane and her husband Grant showed them the Havana nightlife if the relationship between Ernest and Jane became too close Pauline hardly had time for it to register she served as Key West dispatcher for her far-flung family and attempting to coordinate everyone's schedules for the summer and fall was a logistics nightmare the Hemingway's fifth wedding anniversary came and went on May 10 almost without notice except for the paul the telegram pauline received from jane mason's from jane mason extending congratulations and letting her know that to mark the occasion two flamingos awaited her in havana pauline picked them up on her next trip and turned them loose to roam in the hemingway's key west yard along with the peacocks ernest had sent several weeks earlier now we're almost to the time Ernest comes to uh, to Oni, but in July, Ernest caught a record-breaking 468-pound black marlin. He actually did that on July 7, and a week later, on July 13, he submitted his manuscript for Winner Take Nothing to Max Perkins, and he finishes the last story, Fathers and Sons, and on July 19, Ernest and Josie set sail for Key West after landing a total of 54 Marlins since mid-April. Interesting side note, Hadley, Ernest's first wife, remarried this month. She wed journalist Paul Maurer on July 5, 1933 after a five-year courtship. Okay, August, he returns to Onda for the fifth time. On August 4-7, he, Pauline, Pauline's sister Jenny, Bumby, and Patrick arrive Havana where they board a ship uh, and they set sail for Santander, Spain. They sailed from August 7 to the 17th, that's an 11-day voyage when they arrived in Santander on the 17th, and on August 27, the family made their way to Andai, which acted as their home base for four or five days. Ernest met with his attorney, Maurice Spicer, They attended a bullfight in San Sebastian, Spain, and he corrected the proofs for Winner Take Nothing. And in 1933, Esquire came out uh, with their next, well, in September 1933, he finished his next article called The Friends of Spain, a Spanish letter, which was ultimately published in the next issue of Esquire in January of 44. Finally, in October of 33, Winner Takes Nothing is published in New York with the 14 articles in November Charles Thompson and uh, Pauline and Ernest met in Paris and they set sail for East Africa from Marseille France Marseille where they went on their very first Safari on December 20th Hemingway went on his first Safari with Pauline now in closing this I'd like to read just a couple excerpts from my forthcoming book and I'm gonna focus in on a chapter that I wrote about Pauline and how she handled this um, somewhat tenuous relationship between Ernest and Jane so here it is uh, my excerpt excerpt number one when Pauline met Ernest he and Hadley had been married for just four years similarly After less than five years into her marriage to Ernest, by spring 1932, he was seeing Jane. There was still a chance for them in 1933, when Ernest affectionately referred to her as as Poor Old Mama. He even memorialized this nickname when he referred to her as P.O.M. in Green Hills of Africa, which which was to become his next big book, published in 1935. It was cute when they called each other nicknames. But they didn't do that anymore. Their relationship was more like a business partnership now. Ernest and his editor at Scribner's, Max Perkins, had come to rely on Pauline. She made sure to keep his iceberg style of writing taut, sparse, and rhythmic. She was an expert editor. If she hadn't given it all up for him, she might've become a successful writer in her own right. And finally, my second excerpt, again uh, uh, i think it's a little uh, interesting uh, about his relationship with jane here we go when jane mason entered ernest's life in 1932 pauline braced herself she knew ernest well he couldn't stand to be alone and she knew he couldn't fall in love with a woman without marrying her pauline had given him, had given him a long leash for a while by the mid-1930s though she yearned for her husband's affection she changed her hair color she cut it shorter the way he liked it would this work should she use contraception no she wasn't willing to go that far technically speaking even though coitus interruptus was a sin she wasn't willing to abstain completely it was worth the risk even though another pregnancy could put her life in danger she had delivered patrick and gregory via section and another uh, another uh, child was out of the question. Ernest's first priority was always his writing. Hers was always Ernest. It began to grate on Ernest that Pauline would remind him that the main source of their family income was from her family, the Pfeiffer's. Even though he complained about how the rich blunted his powers of observation, it was better than having to worry about money. Ernest by himself couldn't yet afford extravagant luxuries. Uncle Uncle Gus had funded the big-ticket items, like the apartment in Paris, the house in Key West, the first safari he and his wife Pauline embarked on in Kenya and in Tanzania in 1933 and 1934, and even the occasional new Ford Roadsters. The deep well would never run dry so long as he stayed with Pauline. Well, folks, that's it for this podcast. I'm so happy to have uh, gotten back into the saddle. And uh, you can count on the next podcast being in a week or so when I talk to you about Hube, uh, Hemingway's time in Cuba. Thank you so much. And I'll, uh, I'll cut out here with a little more old-time French music. Here we go.